Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And Tara is in the film American Graffiti. And joining us today is our special guest, Bill Oakley. So welcome, Bill. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Bill. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Absolutely. We're, to talk to we're you. very excited. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've done in the entertainment world? Well, most notably, I was uh, a writer and uh, a showrunner for The Simpsons mm-hmm. back in the day. Since then, I have done dozens of other things. I have been a writer and producer on a number of other shows. And recently, I have kind of moved into the field of being a food personality yeah. as well. But I still write and produce things. I actually produce a best-selling audio book, more of a podcast, really. But we'll get into that later. So yeah. I, I'm branching out and because, as we all know, the TV business is, colla- is a state of collapse. So yeah. <laughs> I'm doing other things as well. And, and they're a lot more fun. Awesome. Very cool. So can you tell us about kind of your career path? So how you got into being a writer, how things evolved from there, maybe any educational background that contributed or anything like that. Sure. I was, when I say we, by the way, I'm talking about Josh Weinstein and myself in most cases. Josh Weinstein was uh, my best friend in high school and we went on to become uh, comedy writers together. And so I'll be referring to we a lot. Okay. (laughs) In In high school, Josh and I were very interested in humor and we started a high school humor magazine at our high school, which was inspired by the college humor magazines at the time. And it was actually significantly better than almost all college humor magazines, I have to say. (laughs) And subsequently, um, we went to college. Uh, I worked on the Harvard Lampoon and Josh became an honorary member. And we kind of pursued that same type of thing. Although I was mainly a cartoonist when I started out, I branched into writing as well. And then we had a long period of being unemployed for about four years after college until we finally got, we worked on a number of small time cable shows and things like that. And then through a series of um, strange occurrences, we finally, we wrote a new spec script and we got an offer to, I'll get into that, what that is later. We got an offer to write an episode of The Simpsons. Um, and then eventually we got hired at The Simpsons and worked our way up the ladder. And then that, the rest is history. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> So what is a spec script? When you want to become a TV writer, normally, although there are many other paths these days, what you do is you write a sample script. You write a script on spec for like you would write a show that you like. You write an episode of it for free to demonstrate that you're able to write in the style of a professional TV show. And that's generally sometimes people prefer to have an original thing like a pilot that you've written. And sometimes they prefer to have an episode of an existing show to show that you can write in someone else's format. Ideally, you have you have both. Um, and that's still the case for a lot of TV writing jobs that you want to have those two things. But there's so many other pathways in yeah. now. Um, and there's so many other alternatives to TV writing that are kind of more, you know, YouTube based and things like that. Yeah. So it's a it's a long it's a complicated discussion that that we can get into later if you want. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I know you said it was a lot of strange occurrences. How did you end up getting into was The Simpsons your first big writing room? Yeah, well, we had worked. I mean, we, as I said, we worked on these cable shows. Yeah. We also worked on a show on NBC that was canceled after three weeks. So The Simpsons was the first time we were in a room. Like those cable shows had rooms, but they were more okay. just like it was Ajash and me and two other guys. Okay. You know, and it wasn't like a room room. Right. Uh, the Simpsons was, and it was our first, we were completely unprepared for this. We had no, nobody explained any of what was going to be happening to us yeah. uh, before we started there. And we just didn't have 
have any idea. So we just kind of like they called and said, we're getting together. And so we came, we walked up to the what we thought was the writer's room. And then we just kind of sat down and then watched for several weeks until we figured out what was going on. I mean, and and this was also at the time that we were hired, it was one of the best writing writing rooms of all time. Yeah. yeah. You know, they it was like the equivalent of getting hired on Saturday Night Live in 1976. Yeah. Right. Or um, on Caesar, Caesar's Hour in 1957 when, you know, when, when uh, Woody Allen was there and all those people. Yeah. So we just kept our mouths shut for a long time. Yeah. The only people that had been hired since the beginning were, uh, were Conan, O'Brien, and us. Yeah. We were extremely intim- intimidated by the talent in yeah. the room there. And so, we, you know, it, it took us about three weeks to say anything useful. And even then we would just make, we would pitch like very minor, small things, yeah. but then things happened and we got more, you know, we, we turned in our, our first uh, script on staff, which was very well received. And then also almost all those original guys left um, a few, a, a few months later, making us that like the second most senior guys on the show Gosh. after Conan, after only having been there for maybe seven months. And then Conan got hired to be a famous talk show host. So we were the most <laughs> guys on the show after less than a year there. Oh and, and that's, it was amazing. That is that's wild. Crazy. Yeah. And of course, you know, everyone loves the Simpsons and that mm-hmm. was really a special time for that show where, you know, so many episodes are absolute classics that even today people, you know, quote all the time. Yeah. So being part of that group, how do you break in when a room is just fully stacked with such amazing talent like that? A lot of it was luck and timing. And this is one of those things where it's one of the things that I always tell people who want like a pep talk is like a lot of it is luck, a lot of it is timing, and a lot of it is relentless, is never giving up <laughs> to the point that it becomes crazy. Because this is the thing where what happened was they assigned us a freelance script because they had to assign two or three freelance scripts every year to outside okay. people. Right. Um, and so they came in, they liked our spec script, which was a Seinfeld script. They had us, and I think we had met them socially, Mike and Al, Mike Reese and Al Jean. And they said, we're going to give you a freelance script. It's an idea that Conan made up. It was Marge gets a job. And we did, I think we did an okay job. In retrospect, it's extremely hard to write a Simpsons script when you're not on the staff. Right. Because you, there's so many things that you couldn't possibly know uh, about doing it. And so we did it. I think ours was pretty good, but it was heavily rewritten, as was everything. And then there was a long period of of us meeting other places for job potential jobs. You know, we did have our, our, our Seinfeld script was very well received. And the fact that we'd written to Freelance Simpsons was also a calling card. So yeah. we got a lot of meetings. And we actually had gotten another job. Diane English, the creator of Murphy Brown, had a new show called Love and War at that time, which I think was canceled pretty quickly. But at the time, it was the hot new thing. And they had hired us. It was very exciting. Even though we didn't know the first thing about writing a romantic comedy or whatever. (laughs) And they had already hired us. And they had already got computers for us and the office set up and stuff like that. And before we started, like a few days before we started, we asked our agent, could you just please call the Simpsons and ask if there's any way they would ever hire us? And he was like, okay. And they did. That was the thing. <laughs> this I tell you, and this has happened several times in my career where it was just like, you don't get anywhere by not asking. Right. And, yeah. and in this case, what happened was that Jay Kogan and Wally Waldarski had decided to quit like a week earlier and leaving an office with two desks in it and another and the money to pay another team. Yeah. So they hired us like a week later. And it was entirely and, and my guess is had we not asked, they would have just forgotten and right. they or, or, and moved on. And this and this has happened several times in my career where I have been like, let's just ask one more time. Yeah. And it, and it, and it worked. And that's the kind of thing that, that I have learned through experience that you have to do. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be a pest, but, but no. one more ask is not usually a pest. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And like having the work to back it up too. like, you guys had the spec strip, you had the freelance episodes being like, Hey, you know, why don't we, what about the next step? Like maybe we could just hire us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And the same thing with the Conan thing, like who could have predicted that? Like Conan would have been right. the showrunner and yeah. we would have been his employees yeah. if he had, if he hadn't suddenly gotten this other thing in a lot. So it was luck to a large extent <laughs> that those things happened. Yeah. So you were in the writer's room for the Simpsons and then you transitioned to be showrunners. What is that transition like? How do your responsibilities change? When we were mainly writing most of our material, David Merkin was the showrunner. And we spent most of our time, like we, he let us write five episodes a year generally. So we were all, we spent some time in the room, but not very much. We were almost always writing our scripts. And the thing about being the showrunner is it's an immense amount of responsibility and you're yeah. responsible for everything. When you're writing a script, you're only responsible for the script. Now, right. on, on some, and sometimes on the show, they would let you, you get to direct the script or you would get to direct the act, the voice acting or edit the audio track or approve the designs, things like that. Sometimes you wouldn't. When you're showrunner, you have to do all that stuff. And it's like, it's like being the producer and director of a movie, as well right. as being the head writer of the show yeah. all at once, because everything is your call. Everything from what episodes are we going to do and who's going to write them to uh, you know, what color is this guy's shirt going to be? Who's going to, you know, what song are we going to use here? That kind of thing everything and, and directing all the, and so it's an immense amount of work. Josh and I were two people. So we divided it in half. And even so yeah. it was an immense amount of work. Yeah. Right. But on the other hand, you're in charge, like the Simpsons, it's a practically unique in the whole history of TV and that you don't answer to anybody. Yeah. Because Jim Brooks had, had our, these Oscars and things and all these huge hits. When they ordered the Simpsons, he said, okay, well, we'll do the show, but you with network executives, you can't even you, all you can do is broadcast it. You can't give us any notes. You can't come to the table reads, anything. And so that was the situation. And when we were running the show, Matt Groening was not around very much. Jim Brooks was never around. So we just did whatever we wanted. I mean, for, for, except for sometimes we were calling, we were calling uh, Brooks's office to say, is it okay if we do this? And they finally said, just don't worry about it. You don't have to call yeah. anymore. Yeah. And so we just did whatever we wanted for two years. It was great. That's fantastic. That's so funny and so unique because like the idea that someone could go to a student and be like, yeah, we'll do this project for you, but you're not allowed to have any input is has to be so rare. Like it, it, it probably happens to about five different people right. in all of, you know, it's like probably uh, Quentin Tarantino has a deal yeah. like that and yeah. things like that. And, and in TV, there's probably like three people on, you know, maybe Ryan Murphy or whatever. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was a unique experience. And especially given that they, those guys weren't I mean, it was Brooks's deal, but we were the yeah. ones doing the work. So it wasn't like we didn't have the clout to make a deal like that. Yeah, we were just riding on his coattails. Right. <laughs> That's awesome, though. That's uh, what what a cool opportunity. Yeah. And then to see what came out of that is, you know, just such classic television yeah. that, of course, you know, that kind of freedom really does allow you guys to do what you want. That's very cool. Yeah. So did you have a day to day as a showrunner or was it kind of different every day, every episode? Because you're kind of prepping episodes way in advance for an animated show. Yeah, you're doing yeah. you're doing two overlapping seasons because yeah. every episode takes about ten months okay. from the day that it, you start writing till the day it's ready to broadcast. There's these giant calendars that have the episodes lined up in stacks, and then the, the there's a second calendar with the other season that's overlapping. So at a certain point, you're working on maybe twelve different episodes a day, and wow. you're doing you know you're putting the music and sound effects in one episode. You're pitching out an, a, a story for another episode. Episode, you're doing you're editing the audio for a different one the animators right. have storyboards for a fourth one you know so yeah. that's the kind of thing and it, it becomes it's very hard work which is why at least at that time people generally didn't do it for more than two years in a row i, even, I said josh and i still worked around the clock and, and there we divided the work in half yeah too, so it's a big job yeah it's huge totally. 
One of my favorite conversations with friends who love The Simpsons is, what's your favorite episode? So, Bill, did you have a favorite? Yes, I did. And it's no one else's favorite ever because I like there's a lot of episodes that, that are very memorable because they are big in some way, like the baseball yeah. episode or the right. monorail episode. Yeah. The ones, things that you can say in one word. Right. Yep. The one that I like the best is the one where Bart falls down the well and it's called Radio oh, yeah. Bart. And yeah. the thing about it is it has it's no one ever picks it but me, but it has every single thing that makes The Simpsons great. It has like the song has that song. The world we are the world parody. It has a very interesting emotional story. It has tons of hilarious jokes. And it's it keeps making the story keeps making left turns. I think it's like the best executed example of classic Simpsons there is. Yeah. Uh, and it's not one that stands out in the list because it's not catchy in right. a certain way. It's just like perfect sim classic Simpsons. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So you've also written for some live action. Do you approach the writing process any differently when it's animation versus live action? Or is it kind of the same? It's topic? a lot harder when it's animation yeah. because you don't have to, because you can do anything at any yeah. second. In live action, you're constrained mostly by, well, we got our four sets. We got right. our six actors. And totally. we, sometimes one time you can have an extra set if the budget allows. One time yeah. you can have a guest actor. But it's generally just, you can't do anything any, at The Simpsons. Every single thing that, well, maybe we could put it itchy, itchy and scratchy here. Maybe there yeah. could be a comical flashback here. Yeah. Maybe we could cut ahead to the future. And like, so there's 1 million options for every single yeah. line. And thus it is much, at least for The Simpsons, I would say it's vastly harder to write those scripts than it is to write a yeah. live action script because you're so weighed down by the possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many characters in The Simpsons universe right. at this point, like, you're right. You yeah. can literally do anything, any scenario you can think of, which is a million. Totally. Yeah. So, Bill, I mean, you've written with a, a writing partner your your entire career, right? Well, sort of. I mean, Josh and I, I would say after about, about 15 years ago, Josh and I, we work together on some projects and we don't work together okay. on other projects. Also, I don't live, I haven't lived in LA for 15 years. Mm -hmm. So he, and he still does. So we don't, we work together. I would say you know, every four years we work together on something maybe. Yeah. That's cool. So what is your process? Because we've talked to a, a couple of writers who, you know, have partners and they do their writing process a little bit differently. When you do write with Josh or any partner, what does that process look like? I want to make sure everyone understands this because this is what happens. You have to split the money. Yeah. It's cockamamie. Yeah. You, okay. If you, it's like one of those things, you know, I always wonder in a band, it's like, if your band has 14 people in it, do you guys get extra money? No. Yeah. The, the horn players and stuff have to get one fourteenth of what they would get if they were a single person, you know? So mm -hmm. it's in, in almost every t case of, t of TV and movie writing, you are splitting the money. Mm -hmm. So we were split, we were making on several shows that we were running, we were among the lowest paid people, uh, which is yeah. infuriating. Yeah. So, and especially when you have, uh, you both have families. Yeah. So that was eventually what caused, and this is what happens to mo a lot of writing partners is once that writing partners stop being 22 year old, you know, people yeah. who have a lot of, uh, <laughs> who have a lot of disposable income and you, know, you have a family, you be, you split up. And this has happened to dozens and dozens of people. So the process is with writing with a partner is more fun because you're not just sitting there staring off into space. You know, you're like, you're bouncing stuff off each other, especially if the person is your friend. It, but, you know, it's obviously not as good if you're cobbled together because someone has forced you to write with some other person or whatever, or you're someone you met in a class, it might be, you might have personality conflicts. But if you, sure. your friend are working together, it's far more interesting, you know, a day to day than sitting by yourself staring at the computer screen. So have you noticed, um, kind of any changes when it comes to getting hired as a writer? Oh my God. But TV, the traditional path of TV writing that, that we had from 1948 
to 2008 was there were maybe 100 100 shows on the air. Yeah. And you'd write a spec script. You would be lucky enough, hopefully, to get if you got a job, the job you would be most of the year, even if the episode, even if the show went for 13 episodes or 22 episodes, most of the, it would be at most of the year. And the time yeah. that you were unemployed it would be okay because you already made a pretty good amount of money during the time you were employed. Right. Now, that's not the case. Most shows, the streaming services have successfully figured out the absolute minimum number of weeks you're able to be employed. So they say, we're going to get together a mini room. People are going to come in for three weeks and break all the stories for the season and then leave. And we're paying the minimum for those three weeks. And then the showrunner is going to, by themselves, <laughs> write wow. the stuff from the room. So that's the way that kind of thing works now. Yeah. Now, will this change? It, it could change, but they'll probably result, that will result in fewer shows and fewer jobs, but they'll be better, much better ones. Yeah. So mm. that, that's going to be a, a trade-off. But also let me say, what I tell people is, you know, I always, I always say, why are you want to do this? You know, do you want to do this because you want one of those three things, money, creative satisfaction, you know, creative control or glamour, whatever. A lot of those things are obtainable through other means, right. um, especially with the incredible number of opportunities like YouTube, for example. Yeah. YouTube. You are, let me put it this way to the average person. You are as likely to be able to get a million followers on YouTube as you are to get a good TV writing job. Yeah. And with a million followers on YouTube, you will be making more money than the average TV writer and you will have complete creative control, you know, and you won't have to take notes from anybody. Like the thing about I've known, certainly in this food universe that I'm now in, mm -hmm. I know people who have been offered TV shows repeatedly on food channels and stuff like that. And they don't want them because it's like I am making more money and I have more right. satisfaction with my yeah. YouTube channel. Yeah. So like, this is one of those things where it's like TV such as it is. And people have heard of my YouTube show. They haven't even heard of your stupid yeah. network. You know, your, your streaming food network. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Like, so there are the opportunities. This is what I tell people. You know, if you want to go, if you want to act like this is 1988 and mm -hmm. go down that tr traditional path, it will still work. But I would suggest doing a second having a second path where yeah. you try to create your own brand not just on youtube whatever on on instagram on tiktok or doing stand-up comedy or having short making sh um, short one-act plays in local theaters or something like that because you the tv business is not reliable yeah. and you can't trust it to support you or or even give you health insurance or dental insurance mm -hmm. or whatever whereas forging out your on your own path is all is as is scary, but it's no scary. It's, at this point, it's actually significantly less scary in many ways than trusting the television business to support you. Yeah, definitely. Fascinating. It kind of goes like we've had a lot of people give us the advice of or give people the advice, you know, like be making your own content. Like yeah. don't just rely on what you're going to get hired to do. You always need to be making your own stuff to you like obviously hone your craft, but also just open up opportunities. And that's exactly, you know, what you're saying is there's so many avenues to this that you can make it that. You don't have to just hope that someone at some studio gives you a chance. You know, you can do your own thing, especially now. It's so easy to get that content out there now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you always in almost every situation, you're better off forging your own path yeah. than you are relying on the good graces of others yeah. on drive, you know, <laughs> on the freeway. Anytime you have to rely on the good graces of others or people to let you in or merge or whatever, yeah. <laughs> it's very questionable that it's going to yeah. work well. Yeah. And, and that's like, you know, it's much better to be in your own lane. Mm -hmm, definitely. That's fantastic. Even after the Simpsons, you worked on several projects with Matt Groening um, and shows that he's created. Is it common for, you know, creators or writers to work together like that long-term? 
Yeah, I think it is because you get you know that the person knows you can deliver in their style. Yeah. And and generally when a creator, I mean, I know that Larry David has worked with the same group of like six guys since Seinfeld on a number yeah. on Curb Your Enthusiasm right. and, and that kind of thing. Just as an example, and I'm sure that Ryan Murphy has and all those other people because you know the person can deliver and they can deliver in your style. It's much, much easier to get a job with someone that who's who's hired you before than it is from a stranger. Yeah, yes. You know, that's the way that things work too. Is it like it, it, personal connections have such a huge bearing on your like getting hired by a random stranger in TV, even if you're great, is pretty hard. Yeah. Whereas if it's like if it's a even if it's a friend of a friend or it's your cousin's dad or whatever, like that stuff works, which is why there's so much of it in Hollywood. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit how you've moved into really the food world in terms of content creation. Do you want to tell us more about what you're working on there? Yes, I do work in TV right. periodically, but then again, I still don't I, like the jobs aren't that the jobs yeah. aren't that good. And even your good yeah. show, nobody hears about, you know, I was the head writer of the show close enough. I don't mm -hmm. know if you guys ever heard of close enough. You probably, yeah. maybe you didn't see, there you go. Close All enough right. was a very, <laughs> was on for four seasons on HBO max. And it's by the guys that the whole team of guys and the creator of regular show, which was used to be on oh, the yeah. Cartoon Network. Yeah. Right. It's very much like that, but um, even better. And see now this show we made, 80 episodes of it and you guys and most people probably never heard of it that's very annoying it is, um, although yeah. you know it paid okay but it also didn't um it wasn't didn't pay so well that it was worth not doing other stuff so yeah. this is this so i have let me say over the past five years i have transformed what used to be an um a hobby or an interest into a into another career, second career that pays about half my bills now, which yeah. is being a food influencer. And I, um, I've always been the kind of person who was like, "Oh my God, there's a new flavor of Doritos. I got to try oh, yeah. it." Sure. Like, there's a limited time off there offer at McDonald's. I wanted was I wanted to go try it and tell people about it. And yeah. so I've been doing that on Instagram. My Instagram is that Bill Oakley, mm -hmm. and I've been making you know I've been not only do I regular I regularly post stuff all day long on my stories. I do videos that are somewhat funny yeah. about these topics on my Instagram. And over the years, I have gotten now it's been five years I think I've gotten more prominent in this world. Like I'm asked to be on TV shows. I'm on the History Channel. It's a show called The Food That Built America, awesome, and I'm yeah. a I'm a heavy duty regular on that, talking about everything from Nabisco to bourbon to Hershey bars and things like that. And I'm also uh, developing another uh, TV show, which I star in um, as a food personality. And, and I also write articles and things and I'm asked to opine for, I don't know, for online sources when new things come out. And so I have, I, and this, I have to say, this is very fun. Mm -hmm. And I also, uh, most importantly, I have a, I have this thing called the steamed hams society. Now, yeah. many people listening to this will remember there's a Simpsons thing uh, steam, that's colloquially known as steamed hams sketch from this episode, 22 short films. Mm -hmm. I wrote that and I can, and it can, it became one of the, became the most famous thing I ever did. So yeah. that's why I continue to try to parlay it into other things. Yes. And you'll see that behind me, we have a steamed hams beer we, yeah. which has been on sale uh, so far this year. And the steamed ham society, if you want to join, go to steamedhamssociety.com is a club for food. I mean, I don't like the term foodies, but it's yeah. a it's a term, it's a club, online club for food enthusiasts all around the world. And we have several hundred members and we have all sorts of things. We have a newsletter, we have live streams, we have merchandise, we have a very active discord where people like it's it's absolutely the world headquarters for news and opinion about everything from the new flavor of Doritos to how to best sous vide your ribeye steak or whatever. <laughs> awesome. And, 
It's, it's generally, I would say it's not particularly healthy food in most cases, um, but it is the, what we call everyday food. Mm -hmm. So this, and, and it's very fun to do this. And this is more example of what I'm saying of doing your own thing. Because this, if I were to get, let's say if I were to get 800 more members in the next couple of years, I wouldn't have to do any TV writing at all. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't miss it. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's the kind of thing that I, that um, I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Awesome. I am brutally honest, like to the level of Simon Cowell, you know, or Gordon Ramsay uh, <laughs> about, about these things. And a lot of people aren't because they're just promoting it. They're just, they just yeah, want right. to get the free t-shirt or whatever. Yeah. So that's, and I don't need any free t-shirts. So I, um, although I would like them, I don't, I don't need them. I don't yeah. get them anymore from all these fast food companies that used to send them to me <laughs> now that I panned their various new items. Sure. Um, so that, like, I think that's one of the reasons it's distinctive. Yeah. yeah. And the other reason is probably because it's a little funnier and also mine are short. Yeah. So that I provide my things are generally less than one minute long, whereas most people's are 10 minutes. Right. And that's like, I don't need 10 minutes about the new filet of fish. No. Just, yeah. A minute is fine. <laughs> so that's, that's how I'm different. But if you can provide, if even if you're just an interesting person to listen to, that's totally fine. Yeah. Um, everybody has some way that they can be distinctive and that is the way to stand out. And then you, you know, you got to hype that you can't just, there's certain ways that I'm not really that familiar with of building an online following that involve, you know, just regular for one, it's regularly pumping out the stuff. If you put it, if you put three reels on Instagram a week, Instagram promotes you because you're bringing in eyeballs. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of techniques for doing stuff like that, that um, are easy to find online. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So you also, um, another project you were in is your audio book with Natasha Leone, Space 1969. So I didn't know if you want to talk about that some more too. I do want to talk about that. This is my thing. This has actually been my best project of the past four yeah. years. It's my, actually, it's my favorite thing I've ever written. And it's not, it's the audiobook is not really, is really more of a misnomer because it's right. more like a radio yeah. show. Right. Like, oh, this is the thing it's on audible.com and it was designed and I, I sort of thought it was going to be a, pod, a podcast, uh -huh. but audible only has two types of things, podcasts and audiobooks. Right. And mm -hmm. all the way up till an hour, two hours before they released this, they were debating which one this was and they chose audiobook. It's not really like that. It's more like a radio show yeah. from, uh, you know, and so there's 10 episodes up that are about 30 minutes a piece comprising what I think of as season one, which is Space mm -hmm. 1969. It's a retro sci-fi comedy that takes place in a world where Kennedy did not die in 1963, but instead had this epiphany after he was shot that we should not spend any more time in Vietnam, but should expand into space as quickly as possible. The series begins on his inauguration, his third inauguration day in 1969. And we now have an orbiting space station and we're going to open it, a colony on the moon uh, this summer. And the star of, the sh the, of this is Natasha Leone, who plays a nurse who on the space station who was drawn into this gigantic conspiracy and it's loaded with like you know i wasn't i wasn't three years old in 1969 but this whole thing is loaded with 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 pop culture stuff and music and things like beverly hillbillies and hollywood bread and all sorts of crazy stuff that this from that era and it's actually i would say this thing was the most successful thing i've ever done that was not created by matt Groening. it took off they didn't promote it at all but it's it vastly outpaced all the things they did promote so now they really like it and we're and we have just closed or recently closed a deal for me to write the season two the sequel to awesome. it awesome so um that is and that's going to take me about a year to do yeah so um i'm excited about that and also like at knock on wood it's another one of those things where they didn't they didn't they let me do whatever i want that's which awesome. i like so yeah. i hope i hope that happens with the sequel mm -hmm. um but it's a 
very fun world to work in. And also because it's a, like an animated show, it doesn't cost anything for right. me to write this crazy stuff that would be incredibly expensive to yeah. film. It not cost <laughs> anything more to have it in audio. So yeah. I get to do all sorts of fantastic stuff and have, you know, fake celebrities and things like that. Awesome. Um, so check that out. If you, if you yeah. do go to Audible, if you're a member of Audible already, I think you can get it for free. If not, you can buy it. The whole thing takes about probably maybe six hours to listen to. And it's a great for a long drive. Um, especially if you like this kind of, th even if you don't know anything about the 1960s, yeah. you'll still enjoy it. But if you do, you're going to love every <laughs> tiny little, there's so many tiny little things that like, are incredibly lovingly recreated uh, episode of the dating game, you oh, know, cool. where we found the one guy in the world who could do a perfect impression of Jim Lang, who was the host of <laughs> the dating game in the early, late 60s, early 70s, things like that, where we went to and our, our recreated versions of laughing and stuff that take place in this That's universe. Cool. So it was, it's, uh, it was really fun. That's, That's really cool. cool. Well, Bill, what is the most challenging? I know you've had a lot of different jobs, but what would you say is the most challenging part of either being a writer or a showrunner or creating your own content? You know, it's dealing with the outside the outside world. That's yeah. the most it's the most challenging and annoying thing. Well, to take an even broader step back, it's getting the money for your things yeah. because you're asking. You can write whatever you want all day long if you don't ask for any money. You sure. can pr create all your own content or whatever. As soon as you start to go out the door and say, "Give me money for this," to a third party, you are asking for trouble yeah. <laughs> because the person with the money gets to call the shots. And this is a, you know, it happens at movie theaters, it happens in Broadway, it happens and things like that. And so, you know, if you're extremely lucky or you have an incredible track record, maybe the person will just give you the money without asking for any creative control, but that doesn't happen very often. So, I mean, in the broadest sense, you're asking what I think is the case is you might as well just be asking the audience for money. Rather than the thing, you know, that's why things like Patreon and and yeah. subscriptions on um, Instagram and YouTube, things like that. Like, if you're going to ask people for money, maybe just ask the audience to give you a every, every yeah. audience member to give you a dollar rather than go to some place and try to get them to give you a hundred thousand dollars when they're going to make your life living hell. Now right. that may may not happen. Maybe you'll get lucky, but they are they're not going to be incentivized to give you a lot of money unless there's something in it for them. You know, anyway, so that's in general, that's the most challenging thing in every entertainment endeavor is mm -hmm. getting paid for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing is also is for some people, it's not a challenge for other people. It is this is getting the thing done. You yeah. know, a lot of people have an immense ability to come up with ideas, but the person who can crank them out, like how many, everybody has an idea for a movie, but how many people have actually sat down and written a hundred pages of it? Mm -hmm. Very right. few, you know, that be, the kind of self-discipline that's required to like, crank out romance novels or whatever you know like write one every month like that's an incredible skill that like 99 of people don't have um even me like you know when i write these uh when i write space 69 it's 552 pages long it took a whole complete change of mindset for me to sit down and say yeah. you're not getting up until you've written your 10 pages for today yeah mm -hmm. makes sense yeah I think that's really important so do you have any moments from your career that's either just a favorite moment or a moment where you're like i can't believe this is what i get to do for a living well, when we got hired at The Simpsons, for sure, that yeah. was surreal. Yeah. We got yeah. that phone call because, as I told you, I didn't expect them to really do it when we said, would you just call and ask? <laughs> that, and the agent said they were going to hire us. We couldn't believe it. Yeah, That was that was absolutely it. You know, certainly most recently, it was when I got the first email that the Pace 1969 was a bestseller. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, oh, also when Natasha Leone agreed to star in it because I had written it with her in mind. And we didn't really ever awesome. think we were going to seriously get her. But right. um, she did it. So those are some recent ones. Obviously, getting your own show 
on the schedule. That happened to us a couple of times, uh, Josh and myself, but the shows all ended up unfortunately getting canceled, even though they were great shows like Mission yeah. Hill. Yeah. In fact, Mission, this Mission Hill tour that we have been doing this year, I don't know if people know what Mission Hill is. It's a show Josh and I created that was on, uh, that we did uh, after The Simpsons. Um, it was only on three times on the ill-fated WB network, but then Adult Swim picked it up and ran it over and over and over between like 2005 and 2010. So a lot of people grew up with the show and loved it. Um, I think it's the best thing we ever did. Um, and and it's not available anywhere on streaming or anything. So recently we have been taking the show on tour. Josh and I have gone to like 10 cities. We show it in movie theaters. And um, every time it's very rewarding to meet people. The whole theater is obviously full of people who are fans or they wouldn't be yeah. there. Right. So we're meeting people um, who really love, grew up loving the show. And, you know, and it's very, uh, it's, sometimes it's very moving. They have stories about how the show meant, what it meant to them when they were teenagers or things like that. So that's been another very satisfying thing. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. And awesome that you were able to get that feedback because it, it's got to be frustrating. And you mentioned this with Close Enough. You work on this thing and you know it's good, but the, the network or the streamer or whatever just doesn't promote it. And you're like, well, why? The Part of the payoff is getting to see how the audience reacts, right? When you're writing. I mean, that's got to be a big part of why people do it. And if you don't get to see that, it's like, well, why did you pay us to do this if you don't care if people see it? Like, that's for sure. You couldn't be more right. Because yeah. even big things like, you know, Disenchantment, which I worked on with Josh and yeah, Anne right. you know, that got about maybe 36 hours of a, on Netflix homepage mm -hmm. before it moved off. And then the second and third, second season... I worked on it. I never even saw any promotion for it at all. Like, yeah. it's like you guys paid a fortune for this thing. Right. It's like their whole business model is not, is not promoting any one thing. It's yeah. so much just like, here's a torrent of stuff to get new people to sign up. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's, it is unsatisfying when people don't see your thing, even if yeah. you got paid for it. Right. Um, that, and that's, as I'd say, as opposed to Instagram doing videos on Instagram where you get, you know, I get four, sometimes I get 40,000 people in one day seeing one of my videos. And that's very sad. That's probably more than yeah. a lot of Netflix shows have. And it's very satisfying. I can say I'm going to do a video about the new Taco Bell cheesy gordita crunch. And three hours later, it's up. And, yeah. and uh, 24 hours later, it has 40,000 views and 100 yeah. comments. And it's very it's That's very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Even though it didn't pay any money, yeah. it has residual benefits of people joining the Steam Tam Society yeah. or me getting asked to yeah. be on TV and other shows. Yeah. 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 And like people seeing your work, I think that's so important. Absolutely. So, Bill, we got one more question for you before we move on and talk about the movie. And that question is, what advice do you have for people? And you've already given a lot of good advice. But what other advice do you have for people who want to get in, into the entertainment world in some way? Well, for one, it's always about balancing the money issue. Like, you know, you can spend if you have if you have a family that's willing to support you, you can spend 20 years trying to break into entertainment and then you'll eventually succeed probably. But, you know, the, most people don't have that luxury. Yeah. So you have to be able to balance the the cost that it often takes and the sacrifice you may have to make in the early years to, you know, to be a, whatever, a PA or whatever, to break in and make those connections, to be a writer's assistant or something like that, to make the connections necessary to get you to the next level. My, one of my broadest pieces of advice are don't be shy, but don't be a pest. Take it all the way up to right below pest <laughs> in terms of making connections that are necessary to do it. Always balance the think in your head about is the money versus the creative you want to rather do this maybe i maybe i'm better off just writing your novel on weekends rather than sacrificing your whole life to a merciless uh system of things that are designed to screw you you know that's part of like of your, your work-life balance is would you rather you want creative control you want money you want whatever those things do you want family those kind of things are all like you got to make those uh, decisions for yourself 
And everybody has a different calculus for making those decisions. So that's part of it. And also the general thing is don't put all your eggs in one basket. Make sure that you have skills to do, you know, don't be shy about doing other things. Now, there's lots of people who are far less talented than you, dear listener, who are who have a million followers on YouTube, you know, and that's like, if they can do it, you can do it. But part of what required what they did was they didn't get lazy about it. They put out a video every day, you know, they they tried different things and things like that. And so and that same thing goes for for writing of your scripts, you know, like, you can operate like it's 1988, and just write spec scripts, but getting them into the hands of people with hiring power is more and more difficult um, because those people want to hire their friends or the people they've worked with, and maybe they have one spot for someone new. There's a lot of competition for that. So if you, for instance, already have a million followers on YouTube, the hirer is going to be like, this person already has a personal brand that yeah. I would like to have that absorb into my universe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually how a lot of people have gotten hired on The Simpsons in yeah. recent years yeah. were not necessarily from their scripts, but from the fact that they had a hilarious Twitter feed with a million people, or they had, they had done some sh independent short films or something like that, you know? Let's get to our featured film. Taylor discussing the 1973 comedy American Graffiti. It was written by George Lucas, Gloria Katz, and Willem Huck, and directed by George Lucas. It stars Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, and Paul A. Matt. So Susan Q gives a quick breakdown. What's this movie about? Yeah, so we are summer 1962, uh, Northern California town. We have Carl and Steve, two friends about to leave for college on the East Coast, just grappling with that, like the idea that they're about to leave their hometown. Um, Kurt, not as excited about it, really questioning it. Steve, he's like all in on leaving to the point where he has a discussion with his high school girlfriend, Lori, about how they're going to date other people when they when he goes to college, uh, which, which does obviously not go doesn't well. go over well with her. <laughs> but we just see it's like coming to, a coming of age story. So we just see their kind of last night in California and all the stuff that happens. A lot happens. Um, we also meet their friends, um, Terry and John. Terry is who Steve kind of gives his car to to take care of while he's at college. So Terry gets like a big bump in you know, his confidence and he starts talking about like more girls. And then we have John Milner, who like is, does drag racing. He loves to race cars. He gets stuck sort of taking care of Carol, who's like the little sister of a girl he knows. She's like 12, I think, in this movie. Um, so he's kind of stuck riding around with her all night, being annoyed by her, but also trying to protect her. And then Harrison Ford's character comes in, Bob, <laughs> and they get the, mo the most insane car race at the end of the movie I've ever seen. But um, I'm sure we'll get more into the plot, but that's sort of just an overview. So much happens. <laughs> so Bill, I didn't even mention the pharaohs. That's another whole, oh, whole yeah. plot point. Yeah, A whole gang of, of yeah. teenagers. Well, Bill, you chose this movie for us to watch today. Why did you choose American Graffiti? You know, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's the best thing George Lucas ever did. I don't care how much everyone likes Star Wars and the whole Star Wars saga. This is better. It's absolutely flawless, and it's so entertaining. I've seen it more than – I think I've seen it more than almost any other movie. Probably, yeah. I've probably seen it dozens of times. And also, it has a lot of really uh, legendary moments and scenes, many of which we parodied on The Simpsons. And that's yeah. like – there's Probably. some scenes in here. There's at least three scenes in here that I were taken. We parodied beat for beat on The Simpsons, which were very meaningful. And I think the thing about this, I could go on for two hours about this. Yeah. So I'm going to try to keep it short. <laughs> it's a very, it's an interesting, moving, coming of age piece that I, it's, it's almost, I would say it's timeless to some extent yeah. because yeah. it deals sure. with things like I didn't, I wasn't born in this era, um, yeah. but I love this movie. 
even as a teenager and I had the soundtrack on record two LPs, yeah. which I listened to over and over and yeah, over and over. Awesome. And it's, um, and also people who like Days and Confused should know Days and Confused is the same movie. Yeah. But yes. moved, uh, moved 15 years. Like, yep. and that guy and Paul, what's your, what's his name? Richard Linkletter, who directed that admits, I mean, he's basically copying American Graffiti, <laughs> except it's the first night of summer instead of the last right. night of summer. Yeah. And it's 12 years later or whatever. He's 14 years later, but it's the same story. It's the same exact type of thing. And it's, it's also super bad, which is a, even a newer version yeah, of the same story. story yeah. Line. yeah. yeah. And it's it's I'd say the thing is it deals with a lot of themes that are universal, especially for people who are teenagers. It's like, you know, it's a very meaningful uh, it's a very meaningful type of thing that happens. You're gonna go off to college, yep. and then like the this is the thing that continues. I thought about this all last night. Is like the end. You know, when it has the four things, the the things about I won't spoil it. People have yeah. Wow. Yeah. it completely that one. Uh-huh. whatever 20 second art card of what happened to those four guys. Yeah, it completely resets your whole brain, and it's like, oh my mm-hmm. god. Yeah. Um, it's, it's shocking. So like the other thing about this movie that is also shocking is that this movie was released 11 years after these events allegedly took place. Yeah. So if you think if this movie were made today, it would be about an incredible night in 2012, which is shocking, which is shocking. And so obviously things, you know, having not lived through this era, things must have changed so radically between 1962 and 1973 that people were nostalgic for 11 years ago. Now, 11 years ago doesn't seem any different, really. It seems a little different because of the Donald Trump thing. Right. But it's like we it's um, the culture had changed so much during the course of the Vietnam War that um, it's amazing. And I'll say lastly. It's incredible the degree that the TV show Happy Days ripped this movie yeah. off. Mm-hmm. Every time I see it, I'm like, well, they took the same song. Yeah. They used the same actor. <laughs> they used the same font. And it's like, I cannot believe – maybe – I can't believe that maybe they didn't get sued or someone right. didn't say you've stolen our entire movie <laughs> and our and several of our stars to make a TV series out of it. Yeah. I agree with you about the end, the very end. I audibly said, what? Like, what am I watching? This totally, <laughs> like, this totally changes the whole tone of the movie. Right. Not in a bad way, but just, like, it, it just is, hits you. Yeah. I remember seeing it for the first time many, many years ago. And it, that is a, yeah. it's a, it's a pretty wild ending. And mm-hmm. just in terms of like the tone, you know, yeah. that it takes right at the, right at the end. And was this the first time you've seen this movie? I, this is the first time I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, Susan did. I was like shocked. Did yell out in the house. <laughs> like what? <laughs> but it, I mean, this is a classic film yeah. and it is wild that it's George Lucas's first full yeah. feature length movie directed it before star Wars. And it is a, it, I mean, it's such a classic and I love all the characters in this. They're all so relatable. And yeah. the fact that their cars match their personalities and, you know, they all just spend their time driving around, you know, that's such a piece of history, right? Mm-hmm. Because of course, kids today don't just drive around and, you know, they don't, they don't hang out and communicate the way that they did in this era. Yeah. Yeah. But watching it is so fascinating. And, you know, they all love their vehicles so much and they're all such part of their personalities so much so that when Terry finally gets to, you know, take care of the car, then all of a sudden his status as a yeah. person changes. Yes. Right. Like who he is, is now different because of the car. Yeah. Cause he was on that Vespa before and he crashed yeah. exactly. Yeah. Vending machines mm-hmm. in the first scene of the movie. That's like, I would say another scene, this scene, I'm not going to spoil anything for people who haven't, one of the scenes that I love and have loved for decades is that one where he's trying to buy the liquor. Yes. And we parried this. Obviously, we parodied this on The Simpsons in the reverse thing where he was buying, trying to buy all these embarrassing things and so forth. Yeah. But the thing that makes me laugh and it made me laugh out. I've seen it 
20 times, it made me laugh out loud yesterday when I saw this, is when the guy comes out with firing the gun uh-huh. at the end of that. I cracked up so loud yeah. when at the end, and it's like, and it's so well directed. The guy darts out of the liquor store, he throws the liquor bottle, and then yeah. just a beat later, the shopkeeper comes out with the pistol and fires three yeah. really loud shots at the yeah. guy. It's it's so that was so funny. Anyway, there's a lot of humor in this movie too. Yeah. And say that, and it's like it's very, it's very moving. Certain parts. Also, Richard Dreyfus has never been so likable again. Like yes. he was, a, yeah. he was a little likable maybe in Jaws, but he's kind of a, seems like a dick in every other movie yeah. he's yeah. ever been in. Yeah. This was like Richard Dreyfus. You're like you feel for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's crazy. Jaws was not made that much longer. After Only a couple years he later. Looks like a completely different age. Yes. in that movie than he did. like this one. He looks like a high schooler. Yeah, or you know, like a high school graduate. Yeah, I agree with you about all the characters. I just I felt like. So much happens in this movie, but um, it feels like you're just following these kids along on a night in California and all yeah. the stuff you get into, you know, going to the drive-in food stand, um, food restaurant, getting into trouble with their friends, like going off, you know, with a girl to make out. It just felt like a lot of, similar to like super bad, you know, that we talked about. It's just this, and obviously this was made first, but just like a, you're watching a string of events. It almost doesn't matter um, if there's a, like one single plot moving through the movie. Yeah. And it works so well because it it bounces between like a a half a dozen stories, right? And I love the the relationship between John and Carol, who's, you know, who's the bad boy who gets stuck with the little kid and ends up having to like show for her around for the night. And it's so fun to watch them because he's obviously looking to find a girl to hook up with. Yeah. And then gets stuck with this kid and he's like, you know, and then watching them interact is so funny. Um, And it's just such a good relationship and it, it really makes you feel like oh this is just a, a guy who's just out there like doing just kid stuff but then you actually see him have to take care of somebody yeah. and he does a good job yeah. and it's just like oh and then of course then he goes and john ends up saving uh terry you know from the fight yeah. in the movie and everything yeah. and so it's just watching um watching these characters intersect mm-hmm. um in this town is, is is really fun to do yeah, yeah. And as I also say, I already touched on this a bit, but the music, this is a a, a, a weird, it's also like Days and Confused, uh, which copied it. It's wall to wall music. I yep. don't think there's a single second in the move. There may be one, maybe a couple of minutes or where there's no music, but mostly the whole thing from start to finish is completely covered with like 92 different songs, yep. including a whole bunch of great, uh, that radio stuff with Wolfman Jack is yes, so good. I love, yeah. I love I think that's my favorite scene in the movie where, you know, actually. Yeah, have a popsicle. They're melting all over the yeah, place. Yeah, the ice box broke down. Have a popsicle. He asked him so many times to have a popsicle. Yeah. And he yeah. doesn't. He's like, yeah. just trying to get rid of those popsicles. <laughs> really could have helped him out. But I love it. I love that, you know, Wolfman Jack is in the movie and actually, you know, like yes. talking to the kids and giving them advice and helping them out. And but also like pretending not to be the mystery. Right. Exactly. It's like that. It's just the voice on the radio, really. And, and, you know, when he's walking out and he sees sees him doing the voice. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. It's great. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And we haven't talked about the blonde woman yet. Yes. That's off Kurt's journey for the night. I mean, obviously, he's already questioning if he wants to leave for college. Right. But then he sees this woman. She mouths, I love you to him from the car. And then he doesn't see her again. Just sort of represents him like trying to find something to like give him an excuse to stay in this town. Right. Because he's obviously doesn't want to leave. Part of him doesn't want to leave. Right. Um, And just the amount of trouble he gets into trying to find this woman the rumors he hears about her going to wolfman jack and then i think the ending the uh, just prior to the title cards um of him 
you know, in the plane, I think is so good. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So Bill, did you have a favorite scene in the film? I'm fairly sure it's that one I just described with the, with the liquor, the liquor purchase and the gun. (laughs) But there's, there are several other, yes. After that, it probably would be the Wolfman Jack one too, which I love. Um, But I would, I don't know. It's hard for me to pick that, but the liquor one is the one that stuck with me enough that we, you know, we put on the Simpsons. Yeah, absolutely. Susan, do you have a favorite? Uh, There's a lot of good ones. Um, I also love the scene, Terry, when with the girl he meets, where he's just trying so hard to impress her. It's kind of related to the liquor scene, but anytime they're in the car and she, yeah. he's like, oh yeah, I also own a Jeep. You know, I, I like, yeah. I'm he's just lying to her. Really yes. And then she finds out he owns a Vespa and she goes, well, that's almost a motorcycle. Yeah. I thought that was really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I really liked all the interactions between them too. Yeah. What a great. Yeah. And great. <laughs> Every time they'd stop to make out somewhere, yeah, they'd get interrupted. Yeah, it's so good. Poor Terry. <laughs> and then the last thing, of course, is is the most famous. I think uh, probably the most parodied uh, scene of the film is where uh, Kurt actually sabotages the cop car, right? Yeah. And actually, you know, puts the the hook on onto it, and it drives off and pulls the axle off. I mean, I've seen that parody so many times. Um, including, I think the Simpsons did it, I think, if I remember right. Possibly. It might have been after my time. Okay. But apparently that w- would not really happen. I read this thing about it. Like oh, that's yeah. actually what what would, that would not happen with a real car. Okay. But um, you can read up on that. Google it if you, if yeah. you care to know more. <laughs> it feels like a Mythbusters episode for yeah. sure. <laughs> Very cool. I uh, do want to say the actor who plays the lead of the Pharaohs. So, so good. I was. Yeah, Jeff- Bo Hopkins, right? He used yeah. to be in a yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah, he, I was generally really concerned for Kurt's life in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I love that relationship. I love yeah. that, you know, he's like the the guy who got the scholarship, who like the town believes in, and then f- sort of falls into this crowd for the night. Yeah. And then they end up accepting him. And I think that's that's really cool that, you know, yeah. like he is trying to find himself and sort of sort of goes through this mini adventure that night. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a great story. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely see it. And don't look at your phone during it. And that's one of the things, it's one of these, one of those movies that is not really made that much anymore, where it's a character study. It's a, it's a, it's a coming of age piece. It's a, you know, it's kind of just like a cinema verite to a certain extent. And it's so like, it will not be a movie that you will enjoy if you're looking at your phone during it. You got to watch it in in the, you know, ideally in the dark (laughs) and only pay attention to the movie. Yes. Yes. We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Early Work. In honor of American Graffiti, we're going to see how both of you know famous actors' projects, but before they really became that famous. So, Bill, you'll be playing against Susan. So, here are the rules. I'm going to give you the name of a film. If you know the famous actor who got their start in that film, shout it out and you'll get two points. If you don't know, I'll give you multiple choice options, and if one of you guesses it correctly, then you'll receive one point. I have nine actors for you both to identify, and whoever gets the most correct will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? Some Life in the Credits merchandise. So like a t-shirt, you mentioned before, you might want a pretty shirt, a mug, a water bottle, something like that. Something like that. All right, Bill, are you ready to play? I am ready. Susan? Ready. All right, your your first movie is Primal Fear. I don't remember that movie. I don't either. Yeah. Let's go to uh, the multiple choice. I'll give you clues if you don't get it. This movie stars Richard Gere. Okay. But is the actor who really got their start in this movie, was it A, Brad Pitt, B, Matt Damon, C, Edward Norton, or D, Christian Bale? Oh, my God. Christian Bale. 
That is not correct. Susan, do you know? I'm going to guess Brad Pitt. Incorrect. The answer was C, Edward Norton. Oh. But that's okay. We're going to move on to number two. <laughs> All right. I think this <laughs> great start. Really strong start to this game. <laughs> number two. Your film is The Horse Whisperer. Brad Pitt. Incorrect. I, I only kind of remember this movie. I don't know. Okay, I'm going to give you four options. Okay, if I don't get it, does Bill get another No, Bill, Bill okay. gets to guess, because okay. you don't know off the top of your head. Yeah. So is it A, Scarlett Johansson, B, Gwyneth Paltrow, C, Jessica Biel, or D, Sarah Jessica Parker? I'm going to guess Scarlett Johansson. That's correct. Oh my God, that was a total guess. Susan is on the board <laughs> with one point. Okay. All right, I think this next one's going to be a little bit easier. Okay. Number three, Leon the Professional. I know who it is, but I can't. Uh, the name is escaping me right now. I know I can picture the person. Yep. This is also a movie I've not seen. Okay, let's go to multiple choice. A, is it Lisa Kudrow? B, Natalie Portman? C, Kobe Smulders? Or D, Emma Stone? Natalie Portman. That's correct. Well done, Bill. You are on the board with one point tying it up. Is she like a child in that? Yeah, okay. she's like 12 in that movie. that movie. It's wild. Yeah. All right, number four. War Games. Oh, I know this one. Matthew Broderick. Yes, absolutely. Oh, nice. Good job, Bill. That's two points. Right off the top of your head. Very good. All right, number five. Who's the famous person who got their start in Peggy Sue Got Married? Oh. Oh, Kathleen Turner. That's a great guess, but that's not who we're looking okay. for. I don't. But you're right. Just technically not for this game. Yeah. All right. I don't know. This is like a background person. Oh, okay. I have no idea. Okay. Multiple choice. Was it A, Nicolas Cage? B, Ryan Reynolds? C, Ben Affleck? Or D, Dan Aykroyd? Nicolas Cage. Yes, oh, that, absolutely, that Bill. <laughs> You're up to four points. <laughs> You're at one. Okay. Couple questions left. Okay. Number six. Catch me if you can. The two people I I mean, it's obviously not Leonardo DiCaprio. Nope, no, he's already Leonardo a big star at that yeah. point. I have no idea who the other who any else anyone else in that movie is. Yeah, I know. I'm thinking of all the people in that movie. I was like, they're all very famous you, already. Yeah. <laughs> uh this one uh you probably forgot about. Is it yeah. A Heather Graham, B Amy Adams, C Kate Winslet, or D Jennifer Lawrence? Is it Amy Adams? Yes. I, yeah, yeah. She's, that would have been my guess too. Yes. Yeah, I she, forgot she was in that she's movie. She's the daughter who, yes, yes, yes. Yes. All right. You got three left and score is Bill's at four and Susan, you're at two. Yeah. Number seven, Our Song. I never even heard of that movie. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is me. Wild guesses then. <laughs> is it A, Kerry Washington, B, Lupita Nyong'o, C, Jennifer Hudson, or D, Zoe Kravitz? Any wild guesses? I don't even know what year this movie came out to try to like guess who wasn't <laughs> famous yet on that list. Right. Lupita Nyong'o. Good guess, but incorrect. Ugh. Jennifer Hudson? Incorrect. Kerry Washington was the oh, correct answer. Okay. Mm. All right. Number eight. This is a classic film that I personally love. The Burbs. Oh. Well, Tom Hanks. Yes. Is that That's the right answer. <laughs> All right, good. I'm glad I got that one. <laughs> two points for Bill. Well nice. done. So the score is six to two. Bill, I think you've already won, but we're going to do the last okay. one just for right. fun. Okay. Number nine is Animal House. 
Kevin Bacon. Yes. Oh, very good. As soon as you said this game, that was the one that came to mind <laughs> because nobody remembers that he was in Animal House. Yes. Because he had such a tiny role, but it yeah. was it was. He only has like a couple lines in the movie, but yeah. absolutely, yes, yeah, very That's good. Hilarious. Well, well, congratulations. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Before we let you go, is there anything else that you would like to plug? I would like everybody listening to this to join the Steamed Ham Society at steamedhamsociety.com. Also follow me on Instagram at that Bill Oakley and purchase or listen to through some other means Space 1969. Nice. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us yeah, today, this Bill. This was really fun. It's an absolute pleasure. Hey, my pleasure too. It was great, great to be able to um, talk about all those things, especially American Graffiti with you guys. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. He's like yeah. just trying to get rid of those popsicles. <laughs> really could have helped him out.